Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In the heart of the desert, where dreams are made and fortunes are lost, lies a city that wears many faces. But beneath the neon lights and dazzling facade of Las Vegas, there exists a world shrouded in shadows, a world of untold secrets, sins, and survival. Welcome to Sins and Survivors, a Las Vegas true crime podcast. I'm your host, Sean. And I'm your co-host, John. Join us each week as we delve into the underbelly of this vibrant city, exploring its most unsettling true crime stories, where the stakes are high and the truth is often darker than fiction. But this podcast goes beyond the crime scene tape. We unravel the intricacies of domestic violence, exposing the raw and haunting realities that echo through the city's streets. It's a journey through the lives of survivors, the strength it takes to overcome, and the sins that stain the neon skyline. From the infamous strip to the quiet suburbs. From the vast Mojave Desert to the depths of Lake Mead. We bring you tales that make you question everything you thought you knew about Sin City. Sins and Survivors is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now to uncover the stories that lurk, behind the dazzling lights of Las Vegas, because in this city of illusions, the truth is the darkest bed of all. Explicit content is found in this episode. So, listener discretion is advised. A quick disclaimer before we begin. I'm recording this episode while battling COVID, so apologies in advance for the way I sound, but the show must go on. Thanks in advance for your well wishes and messages to feel better. I think they're working. Okay, enough of the business. On to the show. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. In this podcast, we're no strangers to cases where children commit unimaginable acts against their parents. However, in today's episode, we're shifting our focus to a different kind of tragedy, one rooted in deception and betrayal, tales of college students who find themselves expelled and exposed, but still desperately trying to conceal their academic struggles. As we examine these cases through the lens of hindsight, we're confronted with a recurring theme the profound impact emotions can have on even the most seemingly well-adjusted of individuals. It's a sobering reminder that anyone's actions can take a harrowing turn if the right or wrong conditions are met, leading them to spiral into the darkest of outcomes. 
Yet, an unusual twist sets these two cases apart from the rest. Despite the darkness they find themselves thrust into, the surviving parents choose not to seek retribution, but instead advocate for their children, giving them unwavering support. They don't clamor for their children to be held accountable for their actions. Instead, they plead for leniency. Originally, I intended to focus solely on Sydney Powell's case for this episode. However, as I delved into her story, it immediately brought to mind haunting parallels with the Chris Porco case, a case that unfolded in November 2004. You'll soon see the similarities too, but first, let's dive into what we know about the Porco family. Okay, on to the show. Picture this, a quiet suburban neighborhood in Del Mar, New York, a picturesque and typically safe community known for its tree-lined streets and close-knit residents. It's the kind of place where you should feel comfortable leaving your doors unlocked, where neighbors often share friendly hellos during evening strolls. But on one fateful day, the tranquility was shattered in this peaceful town. Judge Anthony Cardona, a respected figure in this community, grew increasingly concerned about the whereabouts of his dependable law clerk. Peter Porco was a well-known and reliable member of this close community and had always been a reassuring presence to those around him. Porco was also incredibly punctual. So when he didn't show up for work, his sudden absence raised alarm bells, casting a shadow of fear and uncertainty over this idyllic neighborhood. The judge's decision to send a court officer to check on the Porco residence was the beginning of a story that would shake Delmar, New York, to its core. The court officer promptly arrived at the Porco home and knocked on the door, and when he received no response, he also called the Porco home phone. He could hear the family dog barking throughout his attempts to contact anyone inside, which wasn't unusual. What was unusual was the presence of a key that had been left in the front door, Testing the handle, he found that he had easy access to the home, but he hesitated. The court officer called Judge Cardona, who advised the officer to go inside the house. The officer was wholly unprepared for the shocking scene that awaited him upon entering the Porco residence. In the foyer of the home, the officer discovered Peter Porco drenched in blood, collapsed on the staircase. Rushing to Peter's side, he attempted to offer assistance but quickly realized that Peter was beyond help. He searched the home to see if there was anyone he could help and soon found Peter's wife, Joan, who was also soaked in blood. It was clear a vicious and violent attack had occurred sometime in the early morning hours of November 15, 2004. Emergency services arrived and assisted Joan, who was surprisingly conscious despite the severe and life-threatening injuries riddling her head and body. Responding officers and a detective named Christopher Bowdish, who was also a friend of the family, arrived on the scene, while she was still being attended to. They asked Joan if she knew who had attacked her, and she nodded yes. When asked if a family member did it, she again nodded yes. According to Bowdish, he then asked her if her son Jonathan had been responsible and she shook her head no. But when Bowdish asked the same question of her youngest son, Christopher, she nodded yes. Though this was the most damning answer he received, 
Bowdish continued asking questions of Joan to gain as much insight as he could about what happened in the household. Sadly, due to the state of her wounds, he knew it was possible that Joan Porco would not survive the surgeries she was heading into. Soon after Joan was transported to the hospital, the police began collecting forensic evidence around the home. Most notably, they noticed that a window screen in the garage had been cut, and an axe that seemingly belonged to the family had been in the bed beside Joan when she was found. The residents of Broccoli Drive were devastated, fearful, and shocked about the attack on the neighbors. The residents of Broccoli Drive were devastated, fearful, and shocked about the attack on their neighbors. They wondered who was going to tell the boys, but most of all, they wondered just who would want to hurt the Porco family. Of course, nobody had any way of knowing that police had already zeroed in on a person of interest, Joan and Peter's youngest son, Christopher. They learned that Christopher attended the University of Rochester and was over three hours away from home. They put a bolo out for Chris, indicating he was considered armed and dangerous. In the meantime, an autopsy of Peter's body got underway, and it helped investigators gain some insight into the state in which Peter's body was found. The medical examiner concluded that Peter was attacked while he was still in bed, with the axe that had been found beside Joan, but the brutal assault had unimaginable consequences. There was extensive damage to Peter's brain that completely altered his response to pain. This meant, despite his fatal wounds, while his body clung to life, he was still able to function as though he was on autopilot instead of being immobilized with pain like Joan. Just like he would every other day of his life, he awoke with his alarm. He continued with his standard morning routine of getting himself ready for work, making his lunch, loading the dishwasher, and gathering the morning newspaper. He stepped outside his home and realized the front door had been locked behind him. He retrieved a spare key from a nearby flower pot, unlocked the door, left the key in the lock where it would eventually be found by the court officer, and walked back inside the house. It was then that he ultimately collapsed near the stairs and finally succumbed to his injuries. Later that afternoon, a reporter named Simone Sebastian from the Time Union newspaper called Chris Porco's dorm. She hoped to speak with Chris's roommate and glean some information about the younger Porco's son and his family from him. However, unfortunately, the roommate was not the one who answered the phone. It was actually Chris who had not yet been notified about the attack on his parents. Noticing Chris's confusion, the reporter realized the next of kin hadn't been contacted by police and attempted to backtrack her question. She told Christopher she would have to call him back. He called 911 and tried to get some answers, and we're going to play that call for you here. That's on police dispatcher saying North. Hi, uh, my name is Chris Porco. I was just called by the Times Union saying that my parents were found dead this afternoon. Um, I was wondering if you had any information for me. Hey, Chris, what about Saria? I'm at school in Rochester, New York. Okay, are, are you in a dorm there? Yes, I am. Okay. Do you have a dorm name or...? Um, it's called Monroe. Okay. And you're hearing from the Times Union? Yeah, they called me and said my, my parents were found, um, I guess, I don't know, they didn't say how or anything. Let me try and find you somebody who may have some more information for you. Okay. Uh, now, as far as, when was the last time you said you came down and saw your parents? Uh, 
out three weeks ago. Uh, it was on the weekend. I can't give you a day. I have to, I have to figure it out. I'm not really sure. Okay, but about three weeks ago? Yeah. Okay, and the email, what, what's going on with your email? You said you, um, you, well, you emailed him today, but you didn't get a, a response? Yeah, I, I emailed him this afternoon. Uh, my dad at work. Okay. Um, about uh, college loan stuff. Okay. You're going to go right to Albany Med? Uh, I don't know. Where, where, I don't even know where my mom is. But... Yeah, she is at Albany Med. Okay. Do, do you know her condition? Uh, in... No, because I haven't talked to her. Let me give you my pager number. Okay. Because when you get there, I'll come and see if there's anything I can do for you. Okay. All right? Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Yep. Bye-bye. Right, Chris's girlfriend later contacted him, adding to his worries by saying that his parents' home had a lot of police activity. He was later picked up by his uncle, who had heard about what happened and quickly drove Chris home. It's unclear whether investigators knew he was on his way to his mother's bedside when they put out the bolo on him, but it was there that Chris learned he was considered a person of interest in the attacks. During the interview at the police station, Detective Bowdish and another detective named Chuck Rudolph questioned when Chris had last seen his parents. He said he returned to town on Friday and stayed at his parents' home, but he did not see them during that time. He got up on Saturday and visited with his girlfriend Sarah at her house, then headed back to his dorm in Rochester around 3.30 p.m. that afternoon. That night, Chris said that the regional director of his fraternity stayed in his bed while his roommate stayed out with his girlfriend. Chris went into the common area of the dorms to watch a movie and ended up falling asleep on the couch. In reading the interview transcript, it is peppered with niceties. It's clear the detectives are trying to disarm Chris, getting on friendly terms with him before they start asking the questions they really want to ask. Seeking a possible motive, they ask about his finances, and it's here that Chris reveals that he doesn't work, but manages to pay his expenses, even if they are past due. He mentions that he purchased a 2004 drink Bringler from a guy on eBay and that his father co-signed the loan for him. Overall, Chris cooperated with the detectives and agreed to provide DNA samples and turn his clothing over for processing. He was slightly disappointed that his car was taken in for processing too, but he would get it back soon enough since no evidence was found inside. The questioning became more direct as the hours ticked by in the interrogation room. This exchange, read out by some friends of the show, was particularly interesting. All right, you've got to understand something, Chris. We've got to connect all the dots here, right? I mean, I usually ask every family member, are you willing to take a polygraph? Mm Mm-hmm. Are you willing to take a polygraph? Sure. Okay, and I would ask the same thing of your brother, all right? Yeah, sure. It is sort of a procedural thing in a case like this. Also, I usually ask if you would be willing to give us a sample. Sure, yeah, yeah, DNA, yeah, sure. Well, it's just saliva. That's all it is. It's no big deal. Definitely. As time goes on, they confront Chris with what his mother said. The exchange goes like this. Listen, Chris, look it. There's been a few things that I wondered about you've been saying to me, but your brother has been able... Your mother's been able to communicate. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know what the situation was with your with your family or anything, but I, I want to try and work with you here. I really do. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you, she says you were involved here. You know, it's, you know what's Okay, do you understand? If you don't, if if we don't come to some type of conclusion here, this is not going to be, this is not going to be good. I'm trying to work with you here now, son. I understand. Work with me, all right? She's not dead. She's indicating what happened to her. 
If you know, son, tell us what happened. What we've been told is you've been drinking quite a bit. Not, you know, just on various points in different amounts. If that has something to do with it, then that's important, but it's different. That would definitely weigh in your favor if that's a contributing factor for you, all of a sudden, losing your temper or something like that. DA listens to stuff like that. It has nothing to do with that. I don't know what you mean. Tell us what's... what's going on here. Did you hear what I said? Your mother is communicating. Okay. She's saying you were there at the house. I don't know why she would say that. Okay, she's alive. I'm aware of that. You've got to talk to us, because I don't want this to get out of hand. Neither do I. It will end up being a mess. Talk to us, alright? Because it's going to end up... It's going to be a big mess, because she knows what happened. I hope she does. Well? I was not there. I'm trying to tell you. But She's I, indicating that you were. I'd like to hear that from her, too. What's that? I'd like to hear that from her, too. You know, I... Son, you know what? I couldn't possibly lie about this. I hope you wouldn't. I wouldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't. All right. I'm trying to... I want to try and enter into this as smoothly as possible to try and... I don't want you to get thrown to the wolves. All right. Listen to me. We're trying to work with you here, but if you don't work with us, it's going to get all out of hand. Okay. I understand. All right. It's going to get all out of hand. And then it's going to get out of our hands. You know, we're going to try and understand here, but you've got to work with us. There's nothing to understand. Why are you saying that? This woman is not going to lie about this. I don't believe she would say that. She has no reason to say that. I was not in my house. I was not there. Son, I'm telling you what the facts are. I'm not lying to you. I couldn't possibly. I wouldn't draw this out of thin air. I wouldn't. I couldn't. You know, the problem is going to be that this is what we've been told. And this is your one opportunity where you're going to get to talk about it freely and give an explanation, if you have one. If not... Don't have an explanation. I was not there. I was 200 miles away at school. I have absolutely no reason to do this to my parents. From what I know about your mother, she wouldn't... This wouldn't be... This is not something she would lie about. I don't think she would lie about it. I never thought she would... Right, right, right. So... Do you see how this might end up if we don't try and... I honestly don't believe she would say that. I don't know why she would. Why would... What? Why would... Why would I even begin to make that up unless it were true? Because if it wasn't true, you would know I was lying if it wasn't. Yeah, well, I mean... If it wasn't true, I mean, if I was lying to you about this, you would know that. I would know. I'm telling you. And I'm telling you... I'm telling you. I told you that she couldn't verbalize, but she can indicate, all right? And I'm telling you it was... It was for sure. I mean, the poor woman laid there for... You know what bothers me about all of this? Is you don't really show much remorse on any of this. Not any compassion. Not even any caring. If my parents were killed, my father, if my dog gets killed, I would show a little more emotion than what you're showing right now as far as what your parents have gone through. I have. Despite the line of questioning gradually turning from casual conversation into more of an interrogation... Christopher Porco was free to leave the police station and return to his family. Interestingly, the interview would later be deemed inadmissible in court because the detectives turned away a friend of the family who came to the station saying he represented Chris. Chris had been asked if this friend was his lawyer, but Chris denied it and agreed to continue the conversation with the detectives. The decision to deem the interview inadmissible was made as the court judge ruled the detectives did not make a good-faith effort to clarify to Chris that the man came as his representative, which may have changed his decision to continue the interview. 
Any defense attorney listening is probably nodding in agreement, but we're getting ahead of ourselves talking about court. The detectives had their work cut out for them when they discovered that no physical evidence linked Chris to the attack on his family. They had to find a way to place Chris at the scene, which meant contradicting his alibi. Since this included him staying in the common area of his dorm, they should have been able to verify if it was true. So while Chris was being interviewed, Bethlehem police were at Rochester University, asking his dorm mates if they had seen him. No one could recall seeing Chris in the lounge, and this night stood out to them because they had all been in the lounge watching Shrek 2. In fact, no one could place him at the university until the following morning, November 15th, after 8 a.m. This was one clear dent in his alibi. The investigation continued, and police uncovered more and more of Chris Porco's hidden secrets. Detectives found reports that the Porcos had filed burglary reports with the police in 2002 and 2003. Still, under closer examination, it appeared that Chris had been the mastermind behind these staged burglaries. In the 2002 incident, Chris stole two laptops from his family, subsequently selling them on eBay through his account. The 2003 burglary involved the theft of Jones' laptop, which again, ended up being sold on eBay by Chris. Even more troubling in 2003, Christopher's place of employment, the Bethlehem Vet Hospital, fell victim to a burglary. Investigators delved further into Chris's eBay account and confirmed that all these stolen items were indeed sold using Christopher's account. His deceptive actions didn't stop there. He also engaged in scams on eBay by selling fake products and sometimes impersonating his older brother Jonathan. He used his account to claim that Chris was deceased and could no longer deliver the advertised items or refund the cost. It was clear that Chris possessed a knack for deception and illicit activities, using these schemes to cover up his actions, especially during holidays and visits home. And it became obvious to police that this was how he was funding his expenses. As the fall semester of 2003 concluded at the University of Rochester, Christopher received disheartening but unsurprising news. He had failed his classes. Determined to deceive those around him, especially his parents, Chris took drastic measures. Instead of putting in the necessary effort to succeed in retaking the test or making efforts in classes, he resorted to forging his transcripts, portraying himself as an achiever with high A's and B's. This elaborate forgery enabled him to secure re-enrollment at the university, but he didn't stop there. He went further, alleging that a professor's error led to his academic downfall, with the misplaced final exam being the supposed cause. Due to this mistake, Chris claimed to his parents that the university had offered to cover the semester's tuition costs, but not the associated fees. To address this financial shortfall, he requested to use his parents' information to obtain a loan. Regrettably, Chris violated his parents' trust by forging his father's signature to secure a substantial loan of over $30,000. With these funds, he settled his academic fees, he purchased the infamous yellow Jeep Wrangler, the one he had said his father co-signed on during the first interview, adding another layer to the tangled web of deception. Detectives inquired about this loan during the interview, and Chris claimed that he had made an error in the application. Chris maintained that it was not intentional, but he had accidentally requested $30,000 when he only needed $2,000. This is the exchange. Right. 
Now, you said, what day was it that you and your father emailed each other about the school loan? It's been ongoing the past week, I would say. And what was up with that deal email about? Was that another thing that you were behind on? No, no, no. no. Next semester, I told him I would be paying for school, and I asked my father to co-sign a loan. He agreed to it, and when the loan was dispersed, it was dispersed for this past semester and next semester. So it was like a total of like thirty grand in loans. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want that, and I didn't want it either. Mm-hmm. So what he did was he canceled that loan and got one through the government, which was a cheaper interest rate. It was like... I don't know what the interest rate was for the private one. Okay, so did he initially apply for the loan, or did you do that on your own? I applied for it. Okay. Did you sign a signature to it, or did that... No. You didn't? No. Okay. No, no. As far as I know, there was no signature signed yet. Well, with your initial application, you have to sign. There wasn't anything like that. For most loans, never heard of a loan where you didn't sign. I mean, it was all done online. So you did it online? Did you have to type in your name? Well, you, you type in your information and stuff. So you applied on the computer? Yeah. From where? School or home? School. I asked him, you know, can I have your social security number and that stuff? And he gave me a thing to get from work saying that he was employed there. He had to get some of his tax information, his wage stubs and stuff. And he gave me all that. And I faxed it over to the person and they gave it for me. Okay. And that was about it. Yeah, because I remember when I... It, it was pretty involved. Was it? Yeah, I'd never done it before. It's pretty involved. So would you... Did you get the money back from that loan? And what did you do? Did you send it back? The money was sent to my school, and it was he sent it back because we were, we were both under the understanding that it wasn't going to be for the past semester also. The conversation between Chris and the detectives during the interview provides insight into his attempts to downplay the seriousness of the situation, despite mounting evidence pointing in the opposite direction. As Citibank contacted Peter Porco, alerting him to his co-signer role on the $31,000 loan, his frustration had reached its peak. As an attorney, Peter meticulously maintained records of his financial transactions. Observing these loans on his credit report, he was deeply concerned and disappointed by his son's behavior. It appeared that he recognized the dangerous path his son was treading, likely due to his experience dealing with unsavory behavior like this in the legal world. Alternatively, he might have been consumed by anger at Chris's entitlement and unresponsiveness. Regardless, Peter believed that the only way to make Chris comprehend the gravity of his actions was to ensure he understood the impending consequences. Despite Chris's protestations, the detectives quickly dismantled his explanation of the situation. They showed an email sent from Peter to Chris two weeks before the attack, wherein Peter expressed his shock upon discovering the loan on his credit report and his son's forgery of his signature. The following day brought no relief for Peter, as he received another notification indicating his role as a co-signer for Chris's brand new Jeep. In the weeks leading up to the discovery of this fraud, Chris had been avoiding his parents' calls and barely responding to their emails. Perceiving that his son was not taking the matter seriously, Peter issued a stern threat. He warned Chris that if such actions were repeated, he would be left with no choice but to pursue forgery and theft charges against him. And despite everything, he concluded his email by emphasizing his and his wife's love for their son. The investigation quickly honed in on Christopher Porco's whereabouts during the week of the crime. Because Joan had indicated that Chris had attacked her and her husband, he was their primary and sole suspect. As investigators began questioning those in his proximity, 
they discovered Chris's propensity for deception and his habit of making grandiose statements. The timeline leading up to the attack provides a chilling perspective. Chris had traveled from the University of Rochester back to his home in Delmar on November 12th, according to his own statements. His girlfriend Sarah confirmed his presence as he stayed with her and left her home around 3 p.m. the following day to return to the university. Throughout most of that day and into the evening of November 14th, Chris remained in contact with her. At around 10 o'clock p.m. on November 14th, he messaged Sarah, informing her that he needed to sign off for the night as he had to pick up a textbook and do some studying. For those who remember, tollways once featured booth operators who collected cash or coins from passing vehicles. An operator named John recollected seeing a yellow Jeep Wrangler passing through his booth from Rochester to Delmar at around 10.45 p.m., the night of the 14th. Subsequent examination of toll booth receipts found in Chris's Jeep confirmed that this was him. This detail takes on an eerie significance as the attack on the Porcos occurred in the early morning hours of November 15th, about as long as it would have taken for Chris to reach there from the booth. The Porcos' home security system recorded that it was disarmed using the master code at 2.14 a.m. on the morning of the attacks. Around the same time, a neighbor of the Porcos attested to seeing a yellow Jeep in their driveway. These pieces of evidence confirmed investigators' suspicions that Chris Porco was indeed the assailant. The police believed that, having passed through the toll booth after 1 a.m. on November 14th, Chris gained entry to the Porco residence using the family's unique security code. He attacked his parents while they lay in bed and severed the phone lines before hastily retreating in his distinctive yellow Jeep, racing back to the university. Another toll booth operator verified this timeline by witnessing a yellow Jeep coming through in the opposite direction just after 5 a.m. The mounting circumstantial evidence eventually led to Chris's formal arrest in 2005, charging him with his father's murder and his mother's attempted murder. Remarkably, Chris remained out on bail during his trial, and when, against all odds, Joan Porco finally emerged from her medically-induced coma, she made a startling claim. Despite being the sole reason the investigators had initially honed in on Chris, Joan now denied any implication against her youngest son, and as Christopher's trial commenced, Joan stood firm, continuing to be the sole supporter of her son within their family. Her unwavering support was a blow to the prosecution's case, exacerbated by a letter she submitted to the Times Union, emphatically declaring her son's innocence. In the letter, she implored the Bethlehem police and the district attorney's office to leave her son alone and search for the true culprits, allowing Peter to rest in peace and ensure her and her son's safety. The prosecution alleged that Chris Porco killed his parents primarily for financial gain. This motive was driven further by his desire to evade the consequences of forging his father's signature. According to witnesses, Chris had consistently boasted to those around him about the substantial inheritance he believed was coming his way, a confession he later acknowledged as true due to his arrogance and self-absorption. Curiously, however, he chose not to testify on his own behalf to clarify these statements at the trial itself. Consequently, much of the testimony reinforced the prosecution's argument that Chris Porco had murdered his father and attempted to kill his mother for financial motives. Despite Joan's insistence that her son was innocent, the legal system managed to secure a guilty verdict against Chris Porco. 
He was subsequently sentenced to a minimum of 50 years in prison. In 2008, Chris initiated an appeal against his conviction, alleging errors in the trial, prosecutorial misconduct, and the absence of physical evidence. This appeal process initiated a series of legal battles that spanned several years. In 2009, the New York State Supreme Court, Appellate Division, heard his appeals but eventually ruled to uphold his guilty conviction. Chris made another attempt in 2010 to appeal to the New York State Court of Appeals, which in 2011 also upheld his conviction. In 2014, he filed a motion to vacate his conviction, citing prosecutorial misconduct and ineffective legal counsel. Nevertheless, the courts upheld his conviction again, finding no merit in his claims. As of the writing of this episode, Christopher remains incarcerated, currently serving his 17th year of a 50-year sentence. But it's a story that continues to gnaw at the edges of our collective curiosity. We invite you to ponder this. Can there be a world where Chris Porco is innocent of the heinous crimes committed against his parents? Christopher Porco's case has captured the public's attention, earning its place in various true crime TV shows, made-for-TV movies, and podcasts. The parallels between this case and the one we'll delve into next, that of Sidney Powell, are uncanny. Hey there, folks. I don't trust tap water. And you know what? I have a feeling I'm not alone. AquaTrue is the game changer we've all been waiting for. AquaTrue uses a state-of-the-art four-stage reverse osmosis purification process. So no complicated installations required. It's easy as pie. For my plant enthusiasts out there, AquaTrue removes 15 times more contaminants than ordinary filters, even pesky PFAS chemicals. PFAS are in nearly 45% of U.S. tap water, but AquaTrue is certified to kick them to the curb. With options for every home, AquaTrue's tech removes over 80 harmful contaminants, including those forever chemicals known as PFAS. And the best part, the filters last up to two years, making it an eco-friendly choice. And my pets love it too. Plus, it's portable, perfect for renters, and those dorm rooms. And guess what? AquaTrue makes your coffee and tea taste amazing. I've already noticed a difference. Go to my Instagram and see how I use my AquaTrue. Get 20% off any AquaTrue purifier at AquaTrue.com with code TCFC. Don't miss this incredible deal. Trust AquaTrue for pure water and peace of mind. AquaTrue.com with code TCFC to save 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It was around 1 p.m. on March 3rd, 2020 when officers from the Akron Police Department headed to Scudder Drive for a welfare check. Less than 30 minutes prior, a 911 call had come in from an employee at the University of Mount Union in Alliance, Ohio, 
They reported that they had called the residence of 19-year-old Sidney Powell and heard yelling and screaming on the other end of the line before the call abruptly disconnected. Despite multiple attempts to call back, no one answered until the third ring, when someone picked up the phone who didn't sound like Sidney's mother, 50-year-old Brenda Powell. As officers arrived, body cam footage captured of distressed Sidney Powell pleading for help, saying, please, she's on the ground. The officer asked, who is it? To which Sidney emotionally screamed back, my mom. She went on to tell the officers that someone had broken into their home through the back window, her voice filled with panic. The officer attempted to escort Sydney out of the house, but all the while she kept asking about her mother's well-being. She followed him outside, screaming for her father. The officer, trying to make sense of the situation, asked her what had happened. From the body cam footage, you could see Sydney, her hands covered in blood. She continued to recount the harrowing events, explaining that she had heard someone enter their home and her mother had screamed for her to get out. Sydney returned to the house upon hearing more screaming and discovered her mother lying in a pool of blood in the master bedroom. Brenda was exactly where Sydney had reported, in the master bedroom with severe blunt force injuries to her head and numerous stab wounds on her body. Next to her lay a cast iron frying pan and in her neck, a steak knife. These were possibly the weapons with which she had been assaulted with likely making these the weapons with which she had been assaulted. Local EMS transported her to the hospital, but she was pronounced dead only a few hours later. Stephen Powell arrived at the scene and identified himself as Sydney's father and Brenda's husband. Officers inquired if Sydney had any mental health issues, to which her father replied in the negative. He mentioned that she had faced some challenges at school but had come back home to try and work things out and that he had only just found out that Sydney had not been attending her classes for the past few weeks. The body cam footage showed Sydney falling to the ground, curled up in the fetal position, and her father approaching her out of concern. However, despite her father's attempts, she remained unresponsive, muttering to herself incoherently and tapping her head against the concrete. This was incredibly distressing for Stephen on top of everything else going on. Sydney was taken to the hospital for medical attention, but was soon released. On her release, she was charged under suspicion of murdering her mother and transported to the Summit County Jail, where she awaited her arraignment. Stephen Powell now found himself grappling with the painful reality of losing his wife and facing the deeply troubling situation involving his daughter. On that fateful day of March 3, 2020, Stephen and Brenda Powell began their morning like any other. Stephen headed off to work at Akron Steel Treating Company, where he held the position of VP of Quality, while Brenda went to her job as a child life specialist at Akron's Children's Hospital. However, around 11 a.m., their day took an unexpected turn when both of their phones buzzed with an alert from the Life360 app, indicating that their daughter, Sydney, was at home. Life360, a mobile app designed to keep families and friends connected, provides real-time location tracking and alerts for its users. It offers features such as location sharing, driving safety reports, and the creation of geofenced areas for added security. For the Powells, this app was a way to watch their children as they ventured into the world. But what struck Steve as odd was the fact that Sydney was home when he knew the school semester hadn't yet ended. 
He couldn't help but wonder if it had something to do with the phone call he'd received earlier that morning from the university. The university had informed him that Sydney was no longer enrolled, but they couldn't divulge more due to privacy constraints. Steve was taken aback by this news, especially as he recalled an incident a few days earlier, where he had tried to access a student portal at the university to determine his share of the tuition payment, only to be abruptly kicked out. Sidney had assured him it was a university mistake, and he had no reason to doubt his daughter's words. Intrigued by the situation, Steve decided to go home and investigate why Sidney had returned earlier than expected. He knew she wasn't due back home for another week, so he left his phone at work to avoid alerting her. He was driven by curiosity rather than anger or frustration. After a brief 15-minute drive, he found Sidney alone at home. He questioned her about the phone call from Mount Union, and Sydney explained that she was still enrolled, attending classes, and keeping up with her coursework as usual. Steve assured her that they would resolve the school-related issues together and figure out how to approach the rest of the school year. He offered comfort, suggesting that she might not yet know what she wanted to do with her life, and that her friends were facing similar challenges. Steve thought Brenda, the family matriarch, would be better equipped to handle the situation, and decided to involve her. He believed that Brenda had the right approach in dealing with the university, so he called her at work to inform her about the call from Mount Union and their need to discuss it. He also mentioned that Sydney was at home. Brenda left a voicemail for the university requesting a return call, while Steve, believing that things would be resolved or addressed, returned to work, leaving Sydney to wait for her mother. Upon returning to work, Steve called Brenda, who informed him that she was pulling into the driveway. She texted him around 12.36 p.m. mentioning her interaction with the student affairs office and the amount the school would refund him. Steve responded at 12.37 p.m. with the amount and advised her to inquire about Sydney's scholarship to prevent its loss. A short while later, at 12.41, he texted again to ask what she had discussed with Sydney. Here's a timeline of events based on our knowledge and court testimony. At 12.51 p.m., Detective Ken Dees, who is a family friend, calls Stephen after hearing on the police radio that there was an incident at the Powell home. From 12.52 to 12.53 p.m., Stephen attempts to call his wife and daughter, but doesn't get through. At 12.54 p.m., while conversing with Detective Dees again, Stephen receives a call from Sydney. During this call, he asks Sydney what's going on. Calmly, Sydney tells him Brenda was on the phone with Mount Union, However, Stephen interrupts her to share that the police are coming to the house because of a phone call they got regarding a disturbance at the home. Sydney then becomes frantic and hysterical, revealing to her father that someone had broken into their home and attacked her mother. Stephen immediately heads home and calls the detective again, conveying that something terrible has happened at his residence. The outcome of that day was beyond anyone's imagination. Stephen discovered that his wife had been brutally attacked, while his daughter was later arrested on murder charges, to which Sydney initially pleaded not guilty. Two days after her mother's tragic death, Sydney was released on bond. But how did Sydney transition from being an ordinary college student to a person accused of such a heinous crime? The Powell family, by all accounts, was a happy and close-knit unit. Stephen and Brenda Powell had been married for 24 years at the time of Brenda's tragic death and had raised two children, their oldest daughter, Sydney, and a son, 
whose name we won't mention due to being a minor at the time of these events. Those who knew Sydney described her as somewhat reserved, shy, sweet, and a bit of a warrior. However, when surrounded by her friends, she was chatty and sociable. She excelled academically and was a talented soccer player. Nonetheless, her perfectionist tendencies often subjected her to the anxieties that can accompany such a personality. Sydney was said to be the kind of child who never spoke out of turn or argued with anyone in her family or at school. During her adolescent years, there was no apparent warning signs or pivotal moments that could be pinpointed as the root cause of the events that unfolded later in her life. Despite her struggles with perfectionism, Sydney graduated from high school with a high GPA and consistently made the honor roll. This achievement earned her a scholarship to the University of Mount Union in Alliance, Ohio, an hour's drive for Macron. The bond between Sydney and her mother Brenda was described as almost unbreakable by Stephen, her father. Disagreements and disputes in the family were handled gracefully without any significant commotion, so when the time came for Sydney to embark on her college journey, her parents couldn't have been prouder. As the fall semester of 2018 began, Sydney grappled with the challenges of being a college student. Her struggles with this transition from high school to college were something many new college students could likely relate to. In a text conversation with her friend Amanda, Sydney lamented that she hadn't been coping well, hadn't gone out, and really wanted to hang out and catch up with her friend. She shared her desire to talk things through with someone who could understand what she was going through. When summer vacation arrived, Sydney was excited for the break. She secured a coaching job and cherished the time spent with her best friend Lauren. These moments provided her with a sense of comfort and relaxation during this time of transition and change. Still, Sydney was also avoiding the stark reality that she faced during her sophomore year at Mount Union. She struggled so greatly in her classes that she was only able to achieve a 2.2 out of a 4.0 grade point average, which caused her to be placed on academic probation. Sydney did not disclose to anyone that she was placed on probation, nor that she felt like she was drowning without a way out. Instead of asking for help, she chose to bury her head in the sand and continue on as if nothing happened, likely hoping that somehow things would work themselves out. But they didn't. Instead of finding some motivation deep down inside of herself, Sydney closed in on herself. She stopped attending classes, slept all day, and withdrew from her friend group in noticeable ways. The university sent her a letter notifying her of her suspension, which meant she could not register for the spring semester and effectively unenrolled her from the school. Despite acknowledging the letter and returning it back to the university, Sydney did not tell her parents or classmates that she was no longer a student at Mount Union. She even continued leaving in her dorm room until she returned home for the winter break. This was a perfect opportunity for Sydney to come clean, but for whatever reason, she did not. She returned to campus and her dorm room for the spring semester. Her presence was quickly noticed by Assistant Dean of Students Michelle Gaffney when she was approached by a sorority president inquiring about Sydney's status as a student. Sydney had begun attending classes and attending sorority events, but was not on any rosters. Speaking from personal experience, when you are part of a Greek organization on a university campus, academic advisors provide a list of students who are registered and active to your organization to chapter leadership. This is a way for the leadership to determine which students are in good standing and which are not. 
If they're not in good standing or no longer enrolled, they're not permitted to attend functions. Now, that varies based on organization and school, but Mountain Union seems to have operated with the same model in mind. Following the inquiry, Gaffney reached out to Sydney directly and asked her to come to her office. After reviewing her student record, Gaffney realized that Sydney was not enrolled for the semester and was not even a registered student. When Sydney insisted that she was a student, Gaffney was confused. She could see Sydney's record, including the letter signed by Sydney acknowledging that she understood she was no longer enrolled. Sydney finally acknowledged that she knew she was not a student at the university and promised to move out of her dorm room. It's clear that this was what prompted the ball rolling for the events that took place on March 3, 2020. Despite agreeing to leave her dorm room, Sydney did not comply and was brought in to meet with Dean Gaffney and Dean John Fraser. Sydney stated she didn't want to stress her parents out because they were having issues with her younger brother and asked for an extension to vacate her dorm room. The deans offered to speak to her parents to help them understand what was happening, but Sydney declined the assistance. The deans then agreed to extend her move by a few more days, but by the third deadline, Sydney had still made no effort to leave. Security finally escorted her off the university grounds, and Sydney had nowhere to go but back home to Akron. On February 24, 2020, she told yet another lie, telling her friends and sorority sisters that she had decided to take the spring semester off at the behest of her parents. She still did not inform her parents about what was going on. She made the hours drive back to her home and soon received a message from Brenda, who said that she had just been pinged by the Life360 app. Brenda knew she had arrived home and asked if Sydney had any afternoon classes that day and if she was okay. Sydney replied that she did not have classes that week. Brenda was skeptical of this response from her daughter and said, Why do I always feel like you are scamming me? Just remember that you need the grades to keep up your scholarships. Cindy retorted, Yes, I know. My grades are good. Thank you very much. It was a bit of an indignant response, but maybe it was just how mother and daughter communicated when frustrated with the lack of trust on both sides. Sydney needed to find a way to keep up the facade of being a student at Mountain Union. For the next week, she drove around Alliance during the day and slept in her car on campus or stayed with friends in local motels. Sydney was not planning to return home until spring break, and she told her mom that she would be home on March 3, 2020, after her classes finished. She reached out to Lauren on March 2nd to ask if she could hang out at her place to watch The Bachelor and spend the night. As you learned earlier, March 3rd was a day that everything crumbled around Sydney and she was charged with murder, felonious assault, and tampering with evidence. After the incident, she was taken to the local hospital where she was placed under a psychiatric hold. There, Sydney continued to claim that when she was in the basement, she heard glass shatter as someone broke into their home. She then claimed that she blacked out after that and regained consciousness to find a knife in her mother's neck. She said she immediately did all she could to stop the bleeding. Some doctors who initially met with Sydney would say that she was in a psychotic state and likely suffering from schizophrenia and depressive disorder. They believe she had hidden these mental issues from everyone around her because she needed to keep up appearances, the reputation of a 4.0 GPA scholarship student, and that failing was not an option. She had to suppress what was going on, but couldn't keep up under all the mounting pressures and, through some awful series of events, 
stabbed her mother to death. Stephen Powell did not want his daughter charged for the murder of his wife. Almost immediately, he was outspoken that this was a very tragic accident and believed that Sydney was incredibly unwell and that Brenda would not have wanted her daughter to face any charges. Once released from the hospital, Sydney was on house arrest, but still under the care of medical professionals. Her grandmother, Brenda's mother Elizabeth, testified that at one point, Sydney expressed feeling the same symptoms as she had the day of the murder. Elizabeth immediately reported this, and Sydney's medication was changed, after which her health was able to progress. Despite the protests from her father and other family members in April 2020, the month after the murder, Sydney was officially indicted on the aforementioned felony charges murder, felonious assault, and tampering with evidence. She initially entered a plea of not guilty. On February 28, 2021, on the advice of counsel, she amended her plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. Her defense was that she was experiencing a psychotic break and killed her mother. On September 7, 2023, before the trial was due to begin, Stephen Powell made one more impassioned plea to spare his daughter. He told the court, I don't know why we're doing this, and this isn't what anyone wants. I don't know how she can handle it. I don't know how I can handle it. I'm trying to keep my family together. Sydney's trial took another three years from the date of the crime to begin, and the majority of the trial can be found on YouTube. The prosecution would argue that they agreed that Sydney did have mental health issues, but that she did not meet the burden that is necessary to prove that she was legally insane at the time of the murder. Her defense would disagree and call experts who would testify to the types of auditory and visual hallucinations that Sydney had. Contrary to her initial claims, Sydney reported that on the day of the murders, she only remembered sitting on the couch trying to comfort her mother over the news of her dismissal from Mount Union. But again, had this feeling of wanting to just run away from it all. That was when she blacked out and found herself coming to stabbing her mother. Her trial began on September 7, 2023, and concluded on September 20, 2023. During the trial, Sydney asked not to be present during testimony that might affect her mental status. Some of the compelling arguments made by experts like psychologist James Reardon for the defense, who testified, I have rarely, if ever, seen a situation where an individual was in such an utterly compromised psychological state as Sidney Powell was at the time of these offenses. It did cause court watchers to wonder if Sidney was indeed experiencing a psychotic break, but the question was, would the jury believe it? On September 20th, 2023, the jury deliberated for two days before finding Sidney guilty on all four counts. She was visibly devastated, as were the family members who showed up in support of her. Her father, Stephen Powell, through the attorney, had an opportunity to make a victim impact statement and used it as an opportunity to ask the judge to consider what Brenda Powell would want. On September 28, 2023, Sidney Powell, age 23, received her sentence from Judge Kelly McLaughlin, 15 years to life, with a slim glimmer of parole on the distant horizon. Sidney's silence echoed through the courtroom she opted not to justify on her behalf or make a final statement. And here, at the crossroads of two haunting stories, we're left to ponder once more. Are you swayed by Sydney's account and her family's perspective? Did you extend that benefit of the doubt to Chris Porco as well? Or you may question if they both were, in their own ways, seeking a path to lighter sentences for their unimaginable acts. 
So often in the world of true crime, we encounter stories that share haunting similarities. Cases where individuals like Chris Porco, Sidney Powell, and many others commit unthinkable acts to conceal their secrets. They believe that extinguishing a life, especially that of a parent, will serve as the ultimate smokescreen, allowing them to hide the truth of their own unraveling worlds. The inexplicable drive to maintain an image, to conceal pain, fear, or profound mental anguish, propels them toward unimaginable acts of violence. It leaves us grappling with questions about the human psyche, the depths of desperation, and the haunting capacity for deception that exists within us all. As we close the chapter on the stories of Chris Borko, Sidney Powell, and countless others, we're reminded that the human experience is a labyrinthine journey, fraught with darkness and complexity. Some navigate its twists and turns with resilience and strength, while others tragically lose their way ultimately causing pain and suffering in the process. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me in this episode as we file away another true crime case. This episode was researched, written, and edited by me, Lainey Hobbs, with content editing by Jesse Hawk of the Inky Paw Print. Special thanks to Anthony Sitko from the Capes on the Couch podcast as Chris Porco. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It's a big help. You can follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter at truecrime underscore cases, Facebook at facebook.com slash truecrimecaseswlaney, and Instagram at truecrimecases with Laney. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com, and we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com if you would like to reach out. Audio engineering produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or at the inkypawprint.com.